Black Doctors Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Steven, your host. I am a new intensivist as of, you know, a couple months ago, newly board certified, and I'm privileged to have Dr. Ugo Izima. Did I say that correctly? That's correct. That's right. That's right. I am privileged to have Dr. Ugo Azima on the show, who is a, a practicing pulmonologist, been in the game for some time. We just connected on Twitter and going to kind of pick his brain, talk about his pathway to medicine, what made him crazy enough to jump into the ICU, and then a new podcast that he's launched called The Last Zebra. So, Dr. Azima, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, it's a true honor and a real uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You know, when when we actually connected fairly recently on Twitter, even I was like, oh man, yo, a black pulmonologist is not too many of y'all yeah. out there. So I was like, we definitely got to connect. And then next thing I know, this podcast pops up that you're doing called The Last Zebra. I'm like, okay, I definitely got to get this brother on the show and, and talk. So, and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, like I told you, your Twitter was one of the recurring Twitters that kept on popping up on my feed. And I was like, oh man, I need to pay attention to this guy. And of course I saw your podcast and I've been following that now for about four months. And so that has been quite inspiring, to be honest. It's really cool to see what you're doing here, man. For someone that I don't know, and I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of what you're doing, man. Man, I appreciate the feedback and the support. So we're going to jump in to it and just tell your story. So where, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I'm Nigerian by way of Jamaica. I was born and raised in... Yeah, I was born and raised in... You had to be a doctor. I had no choice. Yes, I was born and raised in Nigeria. We moved to Jamaica when I was young, about nine years old. And I did the vast majority of my pre-college education there. And after Jamaica, I came to Louisiana, which is where I am right now. I came to Louisiana for college and kind of have been here since. I I left for medical school. So after college, I went to medical school. And there's a pretty cool story behind that. But I went to medical school. I went to the Caribbean Medical School. Okay. And after that, I came back here for residency um, and fellowship. I did my fellowship at Tulane. And I've been out of training now for two years. I'm heading into my third year out of training. So pulmonary critical care, I, I did my fellowship, as you said, in pulmonary critical care, obviously internal medicine before that. And and that's that's how I am to, today. Man, well, you said there's a pretty cool story about, was it medical school? So, I mean, don't keep us in suspense. <laughs> so, yeah, so you, you kind of hinted at it before. I was destined to be a doctor. I think any immigrant or most, not any, most immigrant families can, you know, you know, the old adage saying, you know, the old adage, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so those are really your options at birth. And ever since, for as long as I can remember, I think my parents kind of like, they, they chose all the subjects that I did. And in my mind, I was just, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I don't think I had a, a, I had never really given any personal thought as to why I wanted to do this. I didn't have any personal internal drive to do so. So after, while I was in college, of course, I did pre-med. And again, that was predetermined by my parents. My mom is a doctor. My dad is a pharmacist. And so I come from a, 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 an educational family at the least and certainly a medical family, an educated family at the least and certainly a medical family. And so in my final year 
of uh, college. So my senior year, I was just like, I, I don't think I want to do this. I, I don't want to be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was obviously late because I was already graduating pre-med. And of course, after, so I told my parents, you know, closer to graduation, like, hey, I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to go to medical school. And so you can imagine how that went over. <laughs> so, so I told him, look, I, what, what I'll do is I, I want to take a year off and work. I'll work and see, and just kind of clear my mind. I didn't feel like, I felt like I was just kind of, I was going with the flow of what they wanted. And, you know, I, I've always believed that college is a time for you to find yourself. I just realized that a little late. <laughs> I realized that in my se- junior, senior year, I hadn't <laughs> gotten the chance. You know, I hadn't gotten the chance to figure out who I wanted to be because I was so, I was into the books. I was, all I was doing was studying, right? And so I, you know, I told them, hey, listen, like, I need some time and I don't want to jump into medical school and not have any sort of motivation to, to do it if I'm just doing it for you guys, right? Yeah. So I, at that time, I, I met my wife around the same time, my junior year. And she's in college there too. So I, I essentially stayed. I went to college at Nichols State, a small town in Louisiana, about an hour away from New Orleans, from in Thibodeau. And so I decided to stick around, right, to be with my then girlfriend, now wife, and find a job. And it that experience was really eye-opening because it dawned on me that the pre-med degree is only useful to go to medical school, <laughs> right? Because you're, you're, over, you're overqualified for everything. You have a bachelor's degree, but you're underqualified for anything that really matters, right? <laughs> so it's literally only useful to go to medical school. And of course, the name is in the, it's in the name of the degree and it should have been a hint from the very beginning. So, <laughs> so I was trying to find a job and everyone was just like, no, you know, we're not going to give you this job when we can get a high schooler to do it. I mean, that's where I was. Where, where were you so applying? I was trying to, first, at first I was trying to do like, like to be like a biology sub teacher or something like that at a local high school and they're like, ah, but one, you don't have an education experience. <laughs> and two, you are, you do have a math, you do have a, a bachelor of science, but it's not exactly what we're looking for. So I basically, and then I end up finding a job, a couple of jobs at a, a local hospital as a lab tech. So I was working as a lab tech and a psychiatric aide. And that experience was really cool because it, it actually is where I ended up doing my residency, Leonard wow. J. Shabir yeah, residency. And what happened was the people I worked with in the lab were very kind and allowed me the opportunity to, whenever something cool, quote unquote cool, was going on at the hospital, they would say, hey, you know, just leave those, leave those tubes alone. They're doing a bone marrow uh, biopsy. You should go, you should go check that out. Huh. Or... You know, this is going on. You should go check that out. Of course, we get that information because we work in a lab. So we know what all the little things that are going on in the hospital. So, uh, so you, you were the reason the, the labs was coming back late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was me. That was me. <laughs> that was me. There, there was a, a one-year stretch where labs were just not making it out on time. We were doing good just before these two showed up. But anyway, so that experience actually made me have my own internal drive. I'm like, oh man, and of course, talking to the residents, 
the vast majority of the residents, interns, residents, went to Caribbean medical schools. And so just talking to them, getting exposed, I had no concept of that idea before. Of course, I'm, I grew up in Jamaica, so I, we have a medical school there. But here, you don't consider that school a Caribbean medical school. I think the way we think of Caribbean medical schools are medical schools in the Caribbean that cater to United States citizens, et cetera, et cetera, Canadian, United States citizens, and allow them to come back home here to, to practice. So that was a that was an eye-opening revelation as well. So, of course, you know, I started talking to my mom. She had moved to the Cayman Island, and she worked there as a, like I said, as a family practitioner, family doctor. So I was talking to her, I was like, hey, you know, this is really cool. This is what's going on. I think I will apply to medical school again. And she said, it's funny on that day. It's funny. I just drove by one. So she drove by where St. Matthew's University, which is in the Cayman Islands. And she said, you should apply here. You could be close to home. You know, we get, it's been a while since you were close to home. And, and so that's how I, I applied there and got in and went there for, for medical school. I don't know if, how much you know about Caribbean medical schools, but that in and of itself is quite the experience too, right? It's, it's not as respectfully. <laughs> it's not as structured as the medical students are here. So it's two years on the island and then two years doing clinicals and your clinicals can be kind of haphazard. So, and the two years of, on the island is also, it, it felt very, it felt like you were in some trenches because our classes started really big and each semester shrank because people were dropping out. It's a very different dynamic to the structure of standard American or mainland medical schools. But anyway, so I did my, I did the vast majority of my rotations in between Baltimore and Chicago. Okay. So, so for two years, I was in Baltimore and Chicago. And when it came time to apply for residency, I knew what I didn't want to do. But I, again, I needed more time. And internal medicine gave me that time, right? So there are a lot of things I liked, but there were a lot of things I knew I, I didn't like. I didn't the things I didn't like were pediatrics or begun. I like surgery, but my personality doesn't really mesh well with, I would say, surgical culture. And I think people in medicine just in, intrinsically understand what that means. Enough <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>, said. Enough <laughs> said. And so internal medicine, in the way I thought about it, bought me a little bit more time. I enjoyed the kind of general practitioner kind of aspect of it taking care of the patient. And so I figured, you know, if there's something else for me, internal medicine also has a, a wide variety of options. Right. And after doing residency, Palm Crit became a thing because of how much I, really because of Crit. And I think I'm learning that this is quite how a lot of people get to pulmonary critical care is through the ICU, right? Yeah. A lot of people love the ICU and pulmonary is usually just attached to it. And that's exactly how that came about. I really enjoyed my time in the ICU. I feel like the ICU, I will get nervous everywhere else in the hospital except the ICU, right? It, to me, it is the most comforting place in the, in, the, in the hospital, right? Everywhere else, it's chaos. There's no real order. This is the way I think about it. This is not real, but there's no real order. In the ICU, the answer for what you need to do immediately is almost always very obvious, right? Yeah. The patient rolls in, you, 
you look at the patient in five seconds, there's something that you need to do right now. And it's very obvious. They're really short of breath. You need to intubate. Your blood pressures, your blood pressure, they're in shock. They need pressors. They need anotropic support. You know, there, there's something very obvious for you to do when the patient shows up. Yeah. Whereas on the floor, the patient could be doing a whole bunch of stuff and you're just like, man, <laughs> let me get a CBC, CMP. You know, we'll tune in Let's tomorrow, see what, see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what happens. So I really enjoy the, the ability to act and respond at a relatively quick pace. And if you need to pivot, you can pivot very quickly too. So yeah. I really like that. And that was very comforting to me. So that was also a process of elimination. All the other subspecialties, at one reason or another, I didn't really enjoy them. But I see it really stuck with me. And I applied for a fellowship and got to, I went to Tulane for a fellowship. And that, I felt, that felt even more justified. Like, this is what I needed to, this is what I wanted to be. My pulmonary became a thing for me now in attendingship. Like now I'm, I, I am loving pulmonary in a way that I did not anticipate I would. Okay. Um, and for the, for the listeners out there, define, I mean, we know what ICU is, pulmonary. Can you kind of talk about that part of your practice? Yeah. So pulmonary is, as you know, essentially the practice of taking care of lung diseases, right? So taking care of uh, patients that have the, more, the most common ones being asthma, COPD, so-called interstitial lung diseases. And in the helping of diagnosis of certain things like lung cancer, and we have pulmonary is also very diverse. We do some basic procedures, endoscopies, thoracentesis, bronchoscopy is just going in with a camera and seeing what's going on in the lung. And there are sub procedures underneath that and thoracentesis, draining fluid from the lung. So pulmonary is, a, is the, the management and treatment of lung processes and I think pulmonary is one of those fields in medicine that is, there's so much art and personality depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you can put, present a patient to five pulmonologists and five of them come up with something different, you know? Yeah. All from reading a uh, uh, darn chest x-ray. Exactly. Particular exactly. so nodular... Exactly, exactly. They, they will describe the exact, we're all looking at the same thing and describe it completely different and come to five different conclusions. And that, that was very frustrating as a trainee, right? Because as a trainee, your attending is expecting you to think the way they think. Yeah. So you're almost in, in that space where pulmonary, whereas as a, in contrast to the ICU, we all kind of think the same way in the ICU. That's what I was saying about, you know, the answer is actually very obvious in the ICU yeah. or tends to be much more apparent. In pulmonary, that was very frustrating as a trainee because, you know, your attending puts up the chest x-ray or the CT scan and is like, you know, so you know, tell me, what do you think is going on here? And you give him some differentials that could be correct, but that's it. That's it in pulmonary. <laughs> it could be correct. And they're like, I'm thinking more you know, this and that and this and that's like, oh yeah, that's also, an, really the right thing to say is that's also an option, but they're like, nah, you're wrong. And then the reality is going to be some remote microbiologic uh, fungus exactly. that grows on the south side of the mountains in exactly. Antarctica that's causing exactly. this pulmonary process. Yeah, pulmonologists are some exactly. of the smartest people you'll ever meet. You guys just know so much stuff. 
There's just, there's really so much to it. And I think why I'm loving it right now is it's, now it feels like I'm learning pulmonary, right? Hmm. And because I'm seeing these patients and it feels like I'm seeing them for the first time, right? So I know, I know the book about these patients and I saw some of them in fellowship. I saw a good bit of them in fellowship, but when I'm not out the gate wrong because I'm trying to, you know, answer to my attending, the cu- the curiosity aspect of, you know, which I, I feel like I lost. And that, that's not a, that, I think that's just the way training is sometimes, especially yeah. where pulmonary is concerned. That curiosity aspect, because in training, you're so focused on output, like getting things done. You don't really get a lot of time to kind of dwell on your, in your decision-making, your thought process, the way that being an attending has really afforded me to, I'm listening to the patients, I'm hearing what they're saying, their history becomes a much more interesting and engaging to me. I asked a patient the other day if they, what kind of pillow they had. <laughs> and the reason you ask that is because, you know, you have feathered pillows that can cause pneumonitis, Right. Hey, y'all be making this stuff up. And I promise you, <laughs> and as the words came out of my mouth, a part of me just started cackling. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you just asked this patient what kind of pillow they have. But that 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 kind of curiosity is really has yeah. been really invigorating, and I've been really enjoying that over the past couple of years. Yeah, y'all are detectives. And I want to dig into that because you spent your time in medical school. And rotated, mm-hmm. you know, into different rotations. You spent your time in internal medicine residency. We know y'all learned some of everything. And then you completed a pulmonary critical care medicine fellowship. Been in practice for, you said, about two years. Yeah. How do you compare the learning that you've experienced in these two years kind of compared to fellowship and residency in medical school? That's a really good question. I think... Fundamentally, because medicine is a is an experience based practice, right? So, what I, I think is that once you leave medical school, you should try to see as much as possible, right? Try to see and do as much as possible. I have a friend of mine, an older friend. He's a friend of mine now. He used to be my attending. He would always say, "You shouldn't see something in practice that you've never seen in training," right? So. You should try and see as much as possible. I think where tra- where I'm learning now is a lot of the nuances of disease processes that I did not appreciate in training. Yeah. Right. So it's it's a deeper kind of learning and understanding, and you never really have the chance to. I, I think in training again, going back because it's an output based output and production and execution-based experience when you're in training. Yeah. You know, you, you get here at 7 o'clock, you have, you know, 15 patients to round on. You know, you got to see them, whatever big, as a fellow in that case, you whatever big things you need to address, get the lines in, get the, make sure the labs are ready before the attending comes. And then you round the attending and the students. And you have to, at some point, find some time to teach as well. Where are, so a lot of the, the subtle nuances that really make the disease, that you, you miss out on those little subtleties uh, between the patients and between the disease processes. And as an attending now, those subtleties are becoming much more apparent. And yeah. those subtleties that I'm appreciating more and, now. And, and you got time I, to think. Exactly. You have the time to think. And 
that time is, there's no way to describe it. And it doesn't mean that I'm getting like four or five hours to think about the patient. <laughs> there's just no, there's just no intrinsic pressure to execute right now. So like you sit at a patient, and if you hit a roadblock, you can say, all right, hold up, let me, let's, let's reevaluate, right? Yeah. I don't think you get that opportunity quite as often in training. And so that, that experience has really, I think I'm learning a lot more. I've learned more about, I would say this, I'll learn, I've learned more in the last two years as an attendant um, than I did probably in the three years of fellowship. I don't know if that makes sense. Wow. And, but to be fair, the learning that you get is exponential, right? So yeah, like, yeah. I think it builds little, on top of each other. Yeah. Exactly. It builds on top of each other. I, I don't think I'd, to, you know, to be fair, I don't think I'd be able to learn in this capacity had I not gone through fellowship. So that's the caveat to that, obviously. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome because, you know, as a student, I think hopefully we don't ruin the allure that uh, intensivists are the smartest people in the hospital. After this episode, they're like, man, I don't know about, I don't know about those uh, ICU docs, but it, it all builds. And I remember as a student at Howard looking at Dr. Saram in the ICU, I'm like, yo, how does this man know all this stuff? And it's so easy to be overwhelmed with right. what you're trying to get and just like trust the process. Everything you endure it builds and builds the same thing like you said my first two or three years doing anesthesia i learned so much about the art of practicing anesthesia Uh, things that i I never learned in residency or just didn't fit together the same way so that that is awesome the way you describe that yeah i'm really enjoying it's really nice obviously because when you go to work it's a different kind of mindset too right so being excited to puzzles become a lot more exciting, right? So yeah. complex patients become a lot more intriguing when you, you're excited to kind of figure it out. And speaking of figuring out, I think that's another thing that attending ship has taught me is sometimes you're just not going to, and you're going to have to be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that, that has been, and I will frankly say that's something I'm realizing over the last six months. We've had some really challenging cases and, the patients get better and I don't know getting better is the goal. That's the primary goal. And sometimes you may not know exactly why some things are working or why some things aren't working, but you have to going back to trust in the process, trust in your experience, trust in your education. And that will cover the vast majority of the, the basis and that has been something that I've that I've really been learning over the past, specifically over the past few months too. Yeah, I, I want to get into one aspect specifically of your practice, and it's easy as a medical student or as a resident. You rotate through the ICU. You're like, oh my god, this sucks. I am working twelve hour shifts. You know, you're doing eighty four hour weeks. ICU is just notoriously hard. You're there yeah. all the time to the point. It's like, why would anybody be crazy enough to do this as a career? So I think it's important to talk about like most of the things you experience. Life on the other side is different. So what is your schedule like as an intensivist? That's, that's a good question. I think, of course, it depends on where you practice, but I think you can probably expect that there's a commonality about the way we practice across the board. For me specifically, my schedule is basically we do one week of ICU, one week off, and then we rotate through pulmonary rotations. So it's a five-week cycle, if you will. 
So it's a week of ICU, a week off, a week of pulmonary clinic, a week of pulmonary inpatient, another week of pulmonary, and then back in the ICU and repeat. Okay. The seven days you're in the ICU, you're, for us, we're on 24-7, but we have a hybrid ICU. And what that means is instead of it being a closed unit, closed unit meaning that all the patients, the critical care, the intensivist is the primary doctor. Whereas in an open unit, the primary doctor is the primary doctor and the critical care doctor is the is a consultant. We have a hybrid of, of both where every patient that comes in gets a ICU consult, an yeah, intensivist consult. And in fact, the intensivist is the gatekeeper to, 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 to see who gets into the ICU. So what it allows is for, it makes for our lives a little bit easier. So we're not doing a lot of the admitting and discharging and that kind of stuff. Because the primary and service so, is the one that admitted the patient to the hospital and they're the ones that are going to discharge paperwork. Exactly, exactly. So it works out really well for us in terms of work-life balance in that sense. So they, it, and especially if like at night, some of the minor issues that come up at night, we get called for any major issues, someone, you know, any major changes, hypotension, needing an airway, anything like that. But you know, if the potassium is 3.4, I'm okay not being called. You know, so the hospitalist or the primary team will take care of something like that. So that's our setup. So for the seven days that you're on in the ICU, you're on 24-7, but it doesn't sound, when you understand that it's a hybrid unit, it doesn't sound as bad as it really, it's not that bad at all. Yeah. So usually you get in around seven or eight in the morning. We have a, the team is the intensivist and a, a scribe. And we're round on the patients in the ICU. That usually takes about an hour and two hours. And that, when you're done, then as admits come and, you know, you take in your admits. Uh, we try to be there from seven to eight to about five-ish. You know, you know, no matter what the day is going, how the day is going, you leave about five. If it's busy and things are going on and, you know, you, can't, you don't leave, you just kind of handle whatever comes your way. But if it's a quote-unquote slow day, you know, you go home and uh, as calls come in, you feel them and kind of triage them. Like I said, any new admit, we get called on to to say, sure, the patient will come to the ICU or, you know, do this, do that. The patient will be fine. We'll reevaluate in an hour or so, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then wash, rinse, repeat. Um, and who, who's in-house for you? In-house is the, in this case, it would be like a hospital who's in-house and they've because they're the primaries. But if anything happens, we go back in if we need to and, and take care of it. And then what's the other weeks, the clinic and the consult week like? Yeah, so the consult week is literally just that. It's just inpatient consults, so non-ICU inpatient consults, where any patient on the medicine floor or any other floor for that matter, medicine, surgical, med surge, tele. We get consults for COPD exacerbations, asthma exacerbations, shortness of breath or acute or hypox, hypoxic or any sort of respiratory failure that the primary team is having some challenges with. Sometimes if you see something on imaging, on any chest imaging that requires a little bit more investigation, we get consulted for that. Pneumonias that aren't resolving quite as well. If they want a procedure like a bronchoscopy, uh, thoracentesis, uh, like I highlighted earlier, those are the kind of consults we get. It's also a procedure week. So okay. when any general procedures that come in for pulmonary, 
whoever is in the console service kind of just takes care of that and knocks it out for the team, for the group. And then clinic is just clinic. The, the, the console week is flanked by clinic weeks and clinic is just clinic. And the typical clinic day is exactly what you think it is, right? So clinic starts at 8 and finishes around 4.30. Lunch at 12, 12 to 1. And of course, I think any every doctor will say, you really don't get lunch because lunch is when you have your committee meetings anyway. <laughs> and they always show up. Once or twice a week, there's a meeting for you to go at lunchtime. But yeah, you see your patients 8 to eight to 11.30-ish. Go try, grab, grab a quick bite. Come back at 1, 1 to, one to 4, 4.30. Clinic, and clinic is over and that's it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and critical care is really starting to kind of take off and get some steam. I was at the uh, chess conference this past, well, last Hawaii? month. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah it was in Hawaii. I, I missed it. That yeah, may man. have contributed to the reason I was there. And then my buddy, Dr. R- Jamie Rutland, was the, the keynote speaker. But I was there. There's a ton of students. And it's important to, to get that scheduling thing out and that lifestyle that there's all these different options, you know, how much palm are you doing? How many consults? I do anesthesia and critical care. So I do a week in the ICU. Our schedule mm-hmm. is seven twelves. And then there's a intensivist that comes in in-house at night for seven twelves. And then I get a week off. And then I do two weeks in the OR doing anesthesia. And uh, so there, there's so many different options out there that, you know, critical care isn't, it isn't, you know, the long, hard toil that you may see as a student. So definitely something that, that you should you could consider. And we'll put a link to your Twitter in the show notes. But how can people find you? Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm available on Twitter. Twitter is an... I love Twitter. Twitter is such a good... Or, sorry, I think X. Everyone should X. Be, X. Oh, man. <laughs> wow. I still can't believe that happened. It, that has to go down one of the most... Man, I, I thought we were all going to be on the same page that we're just going to continue calling it Twitter. But no. But people are... Yeah. I, and I thought about this just two days ago. What do you call... What are tweets now called? Because they're not called tweets. They can, they're not X's. What are they called? That's I, a good question. See, that's the pulmonologist. The pulmonologist <laughs> care doc always with the, the good questions. I, I, it, I'm truly confused as to what we call Because I still say tweets. Michael, yeah, I think anyway. everybody does. Um, we can't. Yeah. What, what's your Twitter account? X so account? Tw- it's just, yeah, my X account. <laughs> Ugo Ezema. So U-G-O-E-Z-E-M-A-M-D is my Twitter X account. And it's the same for my Instagram. And that's, those are my two, two main means of uh, social media, I guess, communication. I do have an email as well. It's the same thing at gmail.com. Cool. We can't let you go before we talk about you know, the thing that kind of brought us together on X, the app for me on Twitter. You launched a podcast recently. I actually listened to I think the first episode today. I was like, man, okay, he's got his voice sounds pretty good. He's got good microphone placement. He's got some, you know, some of the bass in the, in the voice that I listen to my my podcast and I'm like, you know, easy E, like high, like you know, you have that good podcast voice. The name of your podcast is The Last Zebra. So can you explain, you know, what is the podcast about? What inspired you to start this show? Yeah, I th- um, well, th- thanks for obviously you know bringing that up. That's that it's it's been a it's one of those passion things I've always wanted to do in residency. Actually, I, I wanted to start a podcast. I didn't know what I 
for start about just no matter I want to do a medical podcast. The last zebra comes from the adage that you know when you hear hooves in medicine, we say this when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. So essentially, think of the common things when a patient in this context, when a patient presents with cough, runny nose, it's probably just a common cold, right? So it's not that you know, new strain of X that's coming out of, you know, wherever, right? So it's probably what's most common. And the name, I adapted that for two reasons. Where I did my residency, we had a nurse practitioner who would always tell us that. We, she, it, she was essentially the mother of our program and God rest her soul, she passed away a couple mm. years ago, a few years ago. Fabian Whitney is her name and she would always say that, right? So like she's, you know, she's one of the older, old wise, you know, nurses who I would encourage every single medical student resident, listen to these nurses, man, especially these old nurses that have been around, they know what's going on. They know medicine. Again, going back to what medicine is, I think medicine is, a, is an experience upon experience. You should lean on that experience. But anyway, Fabian would always guide us and she'd always, and you know, when, we just read it in, you know, mix app, something, you know, <laughs> we just read it in mix app. So it's, oh man, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a pheochromocytoma. I mean, come on now. And she's like, nah, he, he probably didn't take his lysinopro. <laughs> you know, she, she's just like, no, he probably didn't take his Coreg or his Carvedilol. That's probably what's going on. And sure enough, that's what it was, right? But when we graduate from our residency program, we get a zebra right? To remind us to think, don't get too carried away and listen to the patient that's in front of you. Hmm. Common things being common, that's probably what's going on. And they give us a, like a little thing. I have it right here. I'm going to show it to you. Hold up. So it's like the plaque that we get from our residency with our names and it's a zebra. So I, the, the zebra has, is just something I really have just taken, you know, something to. And so it's an homage to Fabian. It's an homage to my residency and to that adage, you know, when you think, when you hear who's think horses, not zebras. The way I extrapolate that for my podcast is I think a lot of times medical professionals are labeled by that profession. So outside of their, outside of the hospital. So people will introduce me as Dr. Ugo outside of the hospital. And I know it's out of respect but another saying that I've picked up is my, my mom didn't name me doctor, right? So my name is Ugo. My name is Ugo. So you don't have to, I think in certain, in, you know, of course it's out of respect, but in certain circumstances, I am a person who happens to be a physician. I'm a person who happens to be a doctor. And the same applies to nurses, right? So this is my cousin, Blush. She's a nurse, right? This is, you know, like I think in the medical professional, people want, people who introduce you want to, Add in that, hey, right. yeah, they're the honorific. They, yeah, right. They're there. And a lot of times the person behind those titles gets lost. So what are the common things that make us, that's what the, the podcast is about. Who are we behind these titles and what are our stories? So it's a non, the way I describe it, it's a non-clinical medical podcast that kind of dives into the people behind the titles in medicine, the people behind the jobs in medicine how that, how, who they are, where they're from, influences how they practice. 
and, and going from there. So just talking about how our personalities kind of manifest itself in how we practice our medicine. And I think even in the first few episodes I've done now, six episodes, I've recorded six episodes, the four of the people are people I've known for a very long time. Okay. And just by sitting down listening to them, I, I learned so much about it. I was like, oh, I had no idea that about that about you, you know? And it's people that I've worked with. That people, yeah. Any other time you could have asked me, I was like, yeah, I know them pretty well. I was like, oh, wow, I, I really didn't know so much about you. And that is a really cool story about you that we've kind of just, you know, no one really sits down and dies about it. And we tend to like, when we leave work, because of the nature of our work, when we leave work, we kind of leave that behind often, right? And we also leave those people behind, right? Yeah. And until we get back. So like you have close friends at work that aren't close friends outside of work. And I think that happens a lot in medicine. I think I just wanted to kind of find those stories that are common amongst us, that we're just regular people too. We're just common people as well. So yeah, that's that's how that, that came about. Awesome. I listened to the first episode. I think it was a pharmacist. Y'all were talking about Beyonce. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know what they expect. Oh, they're talking about Beyonce, the Beyonce concert. I went to the Beyonce yeah, concert. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. Definitely. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Check out The Last Zebra. That is a hell of a name. Great name. Thank you. For the show. I got Very intriguing. You too, man. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to join. Love to join. Dr. Azima, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing kind of your story and your practice as a, as an intensivist and a pulmonologist. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners did too. You're welcome back anytime and we'll definitely keep an eye, keep track of the, of the things you're up to. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I've, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm really proud of what you're doing here, man. This is really cool. I also thought that your name was very bold and that stood out immediately to me. Because <laughs> like... So I was just like, if anybody that's going to just say like, this is a, this is the Black Doctors podcast. This, this is a bold man that knows exactly what he wants and what, how he's going to present man, it. I put a lot of thought. I, I was like Googling when I, when I got the name of the show. I was like, you know, you know, I could, I know what I want to do, but should I change it? And then it's like, no, make it like unapologetically. That's what all the blogs said. So I was like, all right, boom, it. here we go. So it, it works. It. And then, there's, you know, there's a, there's a strong contingent of non-Black people. Shout out to y'all that support the show, that listen. I got some co-workers that are always like shouting out. They're like, oh, man, yeah, he's had a great podcast. And it's just like all these white people. They're like, oh, yeah, what's the name? You have a podcast? What's the name of it? I'm like, well, you know, I say, I say if I well, told you. it's focused on, you know, supporting diversity in, in medicine. Uh, it's called the Black Doctors Podcast. <laughs> And then they usually you. double down. Then they double down. I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to it. I'm like, they Go. have to. They have to. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But yeah, I, I, again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm really proud of what you're doing. It really is inspiring. Um, I keep looking forward to seeing, you know, I want to watch and see you grow. This is great stuff. So thank you. Thank you for having awesome. this platform. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening, tuning in every week to Black Daughters Podcast. We are here because representation matters. I love it.